0: Welcome to the History of Chemistry podcast. I'm Steve Cohen, your host, and this is episode 41, By Land and by Air, in which we discuss a number of early chemical facts that will eventually lead to environmental chemistry. Thanks to those who already support this podcast. Support the continuation of this podcast at Patreon. The website is www.patreon.com forward slash thehistoryofchemistry. Environmental chemistry didn't really become a thing until the 1960s and 1970s, which is well ahead of where we are in our current timeline. The subject of environmental chemistry is obviously the environment, But it can include a variety of topics. The environment inside one's home. Toxic effects of chemicals on local plants, animals, and people. How chemistry affects global ecosystems. Geochemical phenomena, and so forth. So at this point in our chemical story, I want to at least lay the observational groundwork for what will eventually coalesce into environmental chemistry. We begin our journey in the 18th century with Joseph Priestley again. Around 1771, he was experimenting with airs, or gases as we know. A typical piece of apparatus he used was a sealed jar mounted on a platform, under with which were experiments to generate these gases. One of these experiments showed that he could put a mouse in a sealed jar, and it would eventually die for some reason, which he attributed to some poisoning of the air. In this poisoned air, he put a flame which would also snuff out. Evidently, fire and animals both required some fresh air to be active. Then he discovered that a living plant placed inside this poisoned air would refresh the air. Priestley commented on this experiment. The injury which is continually done by such a large number of animals is, in part at least, repaired by the vegetable creation. Exactly what was happening in the air wasn't obvious, but something was going on. A Dutch physician and natural philosopher, Jan Ingenhoes, who happened to be traveling with Benjamin Franklin and other notables, visited Priestley in May of 1771 and heard Priestley's observations. Ingenhousz decided to investigate further. By 1779, Ingenhousz wrote a report on his own work with the long title of Experiments upon Vegetables, Discovering Their Great Power of Purifying the Common Air in the Sunshine and of Injuring it in the Shade and at Night to which is joined a new method of examining the accurate degree of salubrity of the atmosphere. He described how plants exude bubbles of gas from their green areas under sunlight, and those bubbles stop when the light is removed. Those bubbles he found were oxygen. He also figured out that plants emit carbon dioxide in the dark. Finally, he showed that the mass of oxygen plants created by day is more than the mass of carbon dioxide they create at night, which proves that some part of plants comes from the atmosphere and not just water and dirt. Therefore, Ingenhose is credited with the discovery of photosynthesis. The Swiss chemist, Theodore de Saussure, one of Lavoisier's converts to the new chemistry, researched plants as well. Among many observations, he found in 1804 that plants take in carbon from the atmosphere, though not through their roots and dirt. The French botanist Adolphe Théodore Bronignard was an early 19th century expert on fossil plants and concluded that coal, which is mostly carbon, has a biological origin, for plant fossils are commonly found in coal. Therefore, carbon which is taken up from the air by plants can eventually get fixed into the earth. Jean-Baptiste Boussingault, a French chemist and occasional mountain climber contemporaneous with Bronignard, found another piece of the puzzle related to carbon. He determined that, even though plants emit carbon dioxide by day, Volcanoes also spew out carbon dioxide among their gases, so that some atmospheric carbon dioxide originates from underground. Jacques Joseph Ebelmann, also contemporaneous with Boussingault and Bronignard, a chemist with training in mining engineering, more or less closed the carbon loop by finding two things. First, He proposed that carbon dioxide in carbonate-bearing minerals and dirt undergoes chemical weathering, that is, a chemical reaction to remove carbon dioxide. In particular, one reaction is calcium metasilicate, CaSiO3, plus carbon dioxide makes calcium carbonate and silicon dioxide. His second proposal in the late 1840s was that there was carbon rotation, moving carbon from volcanic gases spewed from underground to the air and dissolved in the ocean. Then the carbon dioxide gets incorporated into living creatures, falls to the seabed, and gets trapped there, eventually forming fossils and carbonate rocks. An Austrian geologist of the later 19th century, Eduard Suess. Invented the idea of the biosphere in 1875, the zone on Earth where life exists, to contrast with the lithosphere, the totality of all rocks. This idea of an actual zone where living creatures have a large influence was expanded by Soviet geologist Vladimir Vernadsky, who met Zeus in 1911. Vernadsky, though, couched his ideas in some fantastical thinking. That is, he ordered the various spheres of influence as first the geosphere, where non-living matter exists, the biosphere, where living creatures exist, and then the noosphere, the sphere of thinking or reason, from Greek noos, mind or reason, which develops out of the biosphere. For us in the chemical sphere, apparently Vernadsky's claim to fame was that he coined the term Carbon cycle in the 1920s to describe how carbon rotates through the atmosphere, underground, and through living creatures, creating a closed loop. Boussingot, whom we just mentioned about carbon, was also interested in how plants incorporate nitrogen atoms into their structure. He founded the world's first agricultural experimental complex in Alsace. By 1836, he performed experiments on pea plants that showed plants need nitrogen, phosphate, and potassium to grow and thrive. He also determined that plants did not absorb nitrogen atoms from the air or precipitation, but from the earth via nitrogen fixation. In the early 1840s, Englishman John Bennett Laws and Joseph Henry Gilbert actually tested the idea of fertilizing the soil with nitrogen on a large scale. By growing wheat, they discovered that ammonium sulfate, their nitrogen source, for ammonium is NH4+, gave significantly larger wheat yields than without. Then, in 1856, Frenchman Jules Reiset realized that decaying animals and plants released nitrogen atoms from their decomposing bodies back into the atmosphere as N2. This discovery, unfortunately, was largely ignored, not an unusual circumstance, as we have seen in the history of chemistry, but became the early basis for a similar nitrogen cycle on the Earth, with plants taking in nitrogen, and even fixing the nitrogen from the air into the soil, animals eating the plants and absorbing botanical nitrogen, and animals dying and releasing the nitrogen back into the atmosphere. Some historians think the nitrogen cycle should be named the Rizet cycle for his discovery. But we have to remember that nitrogen atoms aren't all equivalent chemically, just as a hydrogen ion H+, isn't the same as the hydrogen atom. For example... How does a nitrate group NO3-, with a nitrogen having a valence of plus 5, get converted into a nitrogen molecule whose nitrogen atoms have a formal charge of zero? And how do pea plants and all legumes fix atmospheric nitrogen into the soil? The first results of this question were found by Theophil Schlössing and Achille Münz in 1877 they learned that bacteria perform nitrification, that is, adding nitrates, while experimenting with filtering sewage through sand and limestone. The opposite bacterial process, denitrification, was discovered in 1886 by Ulysse Gaillon and Gabriel Dupetit. Here we have a gradual chemical process of taking the nitrate ion with valence plus 5 nitrogen to a nitrite ion with valence plus 3 nitrogen, to nitric oxide with valence plus 2 nitrogen, to nitrous oxide with valence plus 1 nitrogen, to the nitrogen molecule with a formal charge of 0. Each step, as the 20th century research on electrons showed, we add an electron or two to the nitrogen atoms, gradually reducing the nitrogen atoms to elemental form. The third process, biological fixation of nitrogen, was discovered around this time also, in 1880, by Hermann Hellrigel and Hermann Wilfart. In this process, bacteria again convert the N2 molecule, which is remarkably unreactive in the atmosphere, into a chemically usable form as oxidized nitrogen atoms which have lost electrons. So we have a basic nitrogen cycle like the carbon cycle, moving nitrogen in various valences around the atmosphere, earth, and biological systems. There was one more step in the nitrogen cycle, discovered in the later 20th century, that bacteria should be able to convert the ammonium ion, NH4+, with the nitrogen atom having a valence of minus 3, back to elemental nitrogen. This so-called Anamox process was hypothesized to exist by Austrian chemist Engelbert Broda in 1977. Within two decades, both the process and the actual bacteria were found to exist. For you Cold War junkies, research from KGB archives published by journalist Alexander Vasiliev in 2009 accused Broda of being a Soviet spy. The British MI5 counterintelligence agency suspected him of being a spy, but lacked enough proof to take actions. With all these reactions of nitrogen throughout the environment, the modern view of the nitrogen cycle is perhaps more of an interwoven network of pathways instead of a clear circular route. We have already mentioned Fritz Haber's efforts via Le Chatelier's principle to smush nitrogen and hydrogen molecules together to make ammonia fertilizer in order to boost crop yields for a growing population as another human-invented pathway. What we have really talked about so far with regards to nitrogen, however, was considered mostly the province of agricultural chemistry. but what about other human intervention in these cycles? Let's recall the 19th century use of the LeBlanc process to make the important industrial chemical sodium carbonate. The process emits, among other byproducts, hydrochloric acid. Burning impure peat, petroleum, wood, and other fossils for industrial technology also emits the botanical nitrogen stored inside And there weren't pollution controls a couple of centuries ago. The nitrogen oxides created by burning form acidic compounds in the atmosphere, just as the hydrochloric acid does. Scottish chemist Robert Angus Smith was the first person to note the correlation of acidic rainfall with destroying agriculture near cities in 1852. He investigated pollution and acidification of rainfall coining the term acid rain. He published his vast research in 1872 in his book Air and Rain, the Beginning of a Chemical Climatology, but many of his conclusions were ignored for nearly a century. Thus, we now have at least one chemical example of human activities that demonstrably affect the local environment, acid rain caused by industrial and public actions. Let's examine one of the metals known since ancient times, lead. It is soft and easy to work, so it was used in a variety of technology back then. Greeks took its anti corrosion properties and covered ships' hulls in thin lead plates. Babylonians and Assyrians used lead sheets to build structures. Chinese, Greeks, and Romans made coinage from lead. In the Roman Empire, Their famous baths were often lead-lined. The use of lead, or plumbum in Latin, for water-related purposes, persists even in English as the word plumbing. Other uses included dishes, cooking pots, and water pipes, which were fabricated by wrapping sheets of lead around a rod and soldering the edges into a unified tube. Lead salts were often used to sweeten dishes and as cosmetics. Boiled wine in the Roman era was done in lead kettles for better flavor. An ancient method for winning lead from its ore, typically galena or lead sulfide, was to roast the ore in ambient air. The reaction converted the sulfide into an oxide and sulfate. The lead salts thus obtained were then smelted with limestone or coke to get metallic lead. A second source of lead as a byproduct is in smelting silver, which often occurs together geologically with lead. You can imagine, then, how this large-scale ancient smelting, estimates of Roman lead-based metallurgy are 80,000 tons per year, might spread lead throughout the local environment. And you'd be right. One example of lead contamination from ancient and medieval times, which archaeologists have found, is in the Peak District of England. Here scientists have tracked the rise and fall of the economy with the amount of lead contamination in the soil. As cathedrals rose, the call for lead to use in stained glass windows increased. As New King's minted silver coinage, more silver and lead was mined. Skeletons of people who died in those days have significant lead incorporated into the bones. The fumes and smokes from this smelting even traveled across Europe to ice cores in the Swiss Alps that geologists extracted recently. The highest levels of lead recorded before modernity were dated between 1170 and 1219 CE, correlating somewhat with the taxes collected on mined lead in England in those days. More taxes meant more silver mined, meaning more lead as a byproduct. And what is the specific problem with lead? It's been known since ancient days. The Romans called lead poisoning Saturnine gout because its effects mimicked the Roman god Saturn's supposed behavior, depression and irritability. In 14 BCE, the architect Vitruvius noted that indoor plumbing should not be made of lead because of its effects. Ancient Greek physicians noted lead's effects, including digestive difficulties. Even by the Enlightenment, lead was a concern. Benjamin Franklin implicated lead in rotgut rum and printing establishments, for they used type made from lead alloys. Environmental problems based on human activities do not date from only the Industrial Revolution. They stretch back to ancient times. Thus, we have the beginnings of a variety of areas, ranging from medicine to climate to public works, that will eventually coalesce into what we will call environmental chemistry. At this point in our story, the early 20th century, though, these effects are still considered separate domains of interest. We will, of course, revisit this topic in future episodes. In our next episode, we look at how electrons move around and shape themselves around atoms and molecules. Until then, brave the elements! Thank you for listening to the History of Chemistry podcast.